Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. What you're about to listen to is an interview that Adam and I recently conducted as part of our partnership with the Real Estate Forum and their Ref Club Initiative. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Ref Club Thinkin' with Catherine Marshall. I am Adam Powatic, and your other co-host today is Aaron Cameron. I'll remind viewers who want to stick around to the end, we're doing this live. We are going to have a live Q&A with Catherine, so it's definitely worth your time coming on and watching these while they're being recorded as opposed to coming in after and watching it because the ability to interact with our speakers is one of the highlights of what you get in the Ref Club. But let's jump into it. The topic today is ESG. Catherine is an expert in that topic. She's a principal at Real Alt. We're going to cover a broad spectrum today because ESG might not be the forefront of everybody's mindset, but it is at the forefront of a lot. So it's not it's not really that easy to cover the topic. So we will start with a small primer on what is ESG, and then we're going to jump into something that should be of interest to anybody in real estate, which is how is ESG going to affect outperformance in real estate. So if you're interested in outperformance, which I assume you are, then this is going to be some information that you want to pay close attention to. But before we get into a lot of that, it'd be great to introduce Catherine today and get a bit of her background. So Catherine, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me here. So Catherine, can we jump into how did you get involved in ESG? I mean, I know you're, you're looking at your bio, you've been at it for a while. Everybody kind of knows what it is, at least today. 10 years ago, I don't think anybody did. So how did you end up in this sector of investment? Well, actually, I did get involved 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, let me go back and tell you about myself and kind of set the table for what I'm going to be saying. So I have a long history as a active real estate investor. I was trained as a CFA. And my first job was as an assistant portfolio manager at the BC Investment Management Corporation. And while I was there, I was busy uh, doing a lot of deals. There were just two of us to start off with, building a billion and a half in portfolio real estate across Canada. And in addition to that, I've also worked as an associate partner at Aon Investment Consulting, where I worked with a lot of asset owners to try to make sure that their investment programs in real estate were as good as they possibly could be. But while I was busy doing a lot of acquisitions and then later on research and strategy work, I always had this passion for ESG. And so when I left my last full-time job as the head of research and strategy at CPPIB, what I did first was join together with my husband and set up a green construction company that still runs today. It's called Green Built Homes. And as a result of starting up Green Built Homes, I also got involved with the Canada Green Building Council, and I sat on the board of the Canada Green Building Council's GTA chapter and was very involved in that organization for many years. So really, for a long time, my life ran in parallel. My husband and I would talk pillow talk and over the kitchen table about what was going on with green building. I was doing R&D to support his work. But I actually then went off and started my own consulting company where I was working with clients to drive out performance. 
and I was helping them build a lot of investment funds and separate accounts and other strategies so that they would outperform. And so the two things were just completely parallel universes that didn't connect until a number of years ago when I think that things finally matured enough in ESG that I could see the two things coming together. And when I say mature, I'd be happy to go into this in a lot more detail. But when I first got involved, the whole green investment industry in real estate was all about getting labels on buildings, lead, Bulma best. And it was all about putting stuff into buildings so that you could check the list and get a certificate saying, yeah, you're lead gold. But that really had nothing to do really with anything that necessarily mattered. It was kind of marketing in a way. It was just like putting a brand stamp on something. The maturity of the business has come about where now people are actually driving issues around green into buildings and into portfolios. And that was the maturing. And so it was at that point that I started to do some ESG consulting as part of my overall consulting practice. And in the last two years, it's really become the focus of my consulting to the point where I'm happy to announce today the launch of a brand new platform called R4 Advisors. And that is a collaboration between an existing firm called Risk Nexus run by Tanya Caceres. Some of you will know her formerly of TrioVest, and she built a high-performing ESG team there and has gone on to have quite a consulting practice of her own subsequent to that, and my firm, RealAlts. So that's our collaborative platform, R4, and we are looking forward to working with all kinds of real estate clients to drive performance into their portfolios. Catherine, I'm glad you brought that out early. Well, we will go into Art for Advisors maybe later in the interview and just kind of talk about some of the practical applications that, that you are providing to your clients. I am not a plant, but I, I will say for your husband's business, Green Built has done an amazing job. There's a house across the street that was just done that I've been staring at the Green Built development sign for the last year and a half. And so... Um, <laughs> I had not known the connection, but I, I think clearly, I mean, and just knowing what it looks like and what they've done, being friends with my neighbors, that you've done an amazing job, your, your husband and you have done an amazing job. Let's assume there are some of us on this call that don't even know what we're talking about. I mean, ESG, environmental, social governance, but maybe let's just back up and kind of define or explain, describe kind of how it's become a thing. How is ESG even being mushed together? Why are they connected? And what is the precipice? Like, why are we here talking about it today? Okay, well, that's a big question. So let's maybe break it into some bite-sized pieces. But ESG is, in its essence, driving environmental, social, and governance factors into the investment process. So that's how it's different than greening buildings, because it's about more than just stuff in buildings. It's about the investment process itself, and it very much should be focused on outcomes. Now, up until now, you know, there's been actually a lot of talk about what people are doing in the investment process, not so much talk about what the outcome or impact is. But ultimately, as things mature, people are never really happy with just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. It's got to have some value. So. Let me just maybe start off with just giving 
the most elemental examples. So E, the big thing under the E heading is climate change. But it's also becoming things like biodiversity. It's always been about pollution. And it's obviously about stuff that would be hazardous to people like asbestos in buildings. But let me just say that this ESG concept is not limited to real estate. In fact, let's talk about really what it is and where it's done in a moment. But the S is social. And so that would be things like, is there inclusivity in organizations, in institutions, in buildings? Are there obstacles to people feeling like they belong? Could it be things like lack of braille keypads in elevators? But it's really all about people and society. And G is governance. And actually, I'm not going to talk about that too much today because I'd have to say that that is really yesterday's issue. But governance got going as an issue to ask are the boards or the top organization running this company, this investment management business, this building? Are they doing their job properly? Are they doing it for the benefit of the people they should be doing it for? Got into stuff that's so mundane as proxy voting in stocks. And so that's the G there. Not not going to be too much discussion about that. So now that I've kind of given you, Adam, and Aaron, kind of like a top-level thumbnail, what kinds of things do you think that real estate investors would want to know about ESG? That question's I mean, for you, Adam, not for me. Yeah. We no, don't answer that. questions, Catherine. We, don't, we ask the question. We don't answer questions. <laughs> so in the context of real estate investors, a lot of real estate investors do live in a bit of a silo where it's just real estate investment, and that would probably be a lot of people who are going to end up watching this if you had a continuum of industries, so this would be investment vehicles outside of real estate, how does real estate stack up against other industries in terms of adopting ESG as a, as a real a forefront foundational item that they evaluate? Okay. So really, I think that real estate investors would tell you that we've been doing good stuff in buildings that would fall under E and S for a very long time. And so that stuff would be like, Part of building certification would be accessibility ramps in buildings. It would be stuff like improving lighting systems to reduce energy and things like that. But actually, I'd have to say that in the wider investment business, especially the institutional investment business, where so many of the real estate companies in Canada focus their attention, that would be large pension plans and the like. They would tell you that actually ESG is a stock phenomenon because it really did get the name ESG there early. And it was actually started because of the apartheid system in South Africa, if you can believe it. Would you guys have known that? No, <laughs> new information. So, yeah. So what happened in the early 90s was that all kinds of groups were trying to fight apartheid, but they weren't really having a lot of success. And for those of you who've watched the, the latest season of The Crown, you'd see that even Queen Elizabeth was trying to do her thing there without very much success. What actually really changed things and brought the apartheid system to its knees were a bunch of large institutional investors basically either threatening to divest or actually divest 
of their interest in South African companies, and it brought the economy to its knees. And all of a sudden, stock investors went, wow, we're powerful. We can actually make things happen for good here with our investments. And that really set the whole thing going. And suddenly, you had organizations springing up to try to get investors organized for good. And that's really been going on now for about 20 years. And I'd have to say that over time, started off with words like responsible investment or even corporate social responsibility or social investing or impact investing. But it really seems to have coalesced around these words ESG now to basically mean trying to run your investment process in such a way that there's a triple bottom line that you are producing good returns from your investment process as people would expect. You are focusing in on factors that you feel are either in the public interest or in the interest of your broader stakeholders or not. And you're also trying to create some impact, some outcomes that can actually hopefully be measured. So that's how the whole thing got going. Now, in real estate, as I said, Green Building Council was formed, I don't know, 25 years ago, and we kept on saying green, 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 and we weren't actually communicating with the larger groups that were saying impact and outcomes and ESG and proxy voting and all this stuff. And so, as I said, the maturing in real estate really only happened in the last couple of years where all of a sudden real estate people went, hey, there's a way of actually measuring what we're doing. It's called GRESP. Better get on this. And that, I think, has been one of the major impetuses for real estate to kind of coalesce with the larger ESG system because now through GRESP, we're reporting on stuff that matters and we're doing it like the other reporting systems that are, exist out in the stock and bond world. Catherine, maybe let's get into a bit of, I mean, your R4 Advisors is a brand new initiative, but I think you can probably still speak to this question just about the adoption by the real estate community. I mean, I picked up, you'd said you were CFA trained, right? You've got the financial analysis and clearly you're attracted to this ESG because there's there's a, an ROI component to this, of course. Like why bother other than there are some ancillary benefits, but I think everybody is always looking for that bottom line, right? So what kind of conversations do you have when you're sitting in that boardroom and you're talking to the executives in the real estate community about why it's so important for them to adopt? And again, you had talked about it. I mean, ESG is one kind of big component, but really we're focused on the E and potentially the S as it, as it relates to, to the real estate community. So maybe just focusing on the E, because I think that's really your background. How do those conversations go? And, and what are the obstacles that you get? I think is maybe even more interesting. Why do these executives say, yeah, you know what? It's just not something that makes sense for our business. Yes. Well, so that was one of the reasons why I kind of just wanted you guys to just give me a little bit of feedback, because I would have to say that in real estate, there is still a lot of ambiguity, a lot of confusion. So I'd have to say that one of the very first things that comes up is, why should we care about this? And is this going to be something expensive? And is this just window dressing? 
so I think that that kind of a conversation is somebody who's really at the very beginning of the process. And of course, then I get into kind of a spiel about what are all of the sort of ESG considerations that are real, that especially the governance overseeing an investment process has to worry about. So I've actually got a bit of a list here because there are a lot of things. So I'm, so the very first thing is that there's all kinds of policies that are starting to get developed, especially among asset owners like Ontario Teachers or Alberta Investment Management Company. These policies are basically very strongly worded and they're saying that they want to drive ESG throughout their portfolio from top to bottom. And the words are actually getting even stronger. Like for instance, a survey just came out the other day that said 60% of asset owners are starting to develop policies that they won't hire an equity manager unless that equity manager is a principles for responsible investment. <laughs> that really slipped off my tongue, didn't it? A PRI signatory. So that's one reason right off the bat is if the capital that you're seeking to invest on behalf of wants ESG and they want it demonstrated, then all of a sudden you better start paying some attention or you're going to get left behind. Just on that topic, you mentioned the 60% of the capital places this as a priority. You know, how far along the scale would that go? I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago, it seemed like really only the, the, you know, the pension funds cared about this. And obviously they manage a lot of capital, but how much do you interact with small real estate owners, small real estate developers? Is, is the penetration at that level or is it uh, not there yet? No, it's not there yet. And so the further away you are from large institutional capital, the further that is part of your day-to-day reality. But I mean, I'm here to basically say that it should be for everybody. And hopefully we can have a really full discussion about why it should be for everybody. But it's really policies at the asset owner level that kick this thing off. Then the next thing is fiduciary duty. Any real estate company that is managing money that's trust money, widows and orphans type money, they have to consider their fiduciary duty. And the primary is to prevent the investments from being at undue risk. Well, guess what? Environmental issues and climate change in particular are starting to demonstrate that they have significant and they present significant physical risk to our real estate assets. So just in order to meet the minimum requirement of fiduciary duty, which is a common law requirement of all investors, you know, all of a sudden this is starting to bite. And so that's another thing that in these conversations gets attention. The next thing is, guess what? If you aren't undertaking your fiduciary duty, lawsuits are starting to bubble up. And so those are really costly for companies in terms of both monetary and executive time. And so there's been a watershed lawsuit in Australia where a beneficiary said, hey, you guys aren't taking climate change into consideration in any of these investments. And I'm young. And by the time that I retire, I'm worried that there won't be anything left for me. And guess what? On the courthouse steps, this gigantic pension fund settled with this guy and basically agreed that they were going to develop policies. They were going to do climate change reporting called Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures or TCFD reporting, and that they were going to actually become net zero by 2050. 
So lawsuits are bubbling up. Some of them are actually starting to become serious considerations for groups. And when they don't, there's issues. The next thing is reporting formats. Like, so our reporting format used to be LEAD, right? That was basically a building certification. Well, today we're just so far past LEAD or BOMA best being the only kind of reporting that we need to do. Reporting like GRASP, I can't say enough about its importance, is really, I think, becoming table stakes in the real estate business. And those that don't know about GRASP and don't start to fall in and start reporting under that format are going to find themselves likely very quickly left behind. And that's because the great thing about reporting is it's a virtuous circle. So all of a sudden, you and everybody else like you is reporting and you're getting compared to each other and you're getting ranked and scored. And that causes you to go, well, great, I'm doing great and I want to stay up there. And every year I've got to improve because the guys behind me are, or the guys that aren't doing so well are going, hey, you know, what are we missing? What do we got to do here so that we start scoring really well? And so it's just a fantastic virtuous circle, this kind of like organized, scored, comparable reporting. And so that's, I'd say, the big innovation that's happened in real estate. That's been happening in the stock and bond game for a long time. And then I'd say the last thing is market demand. People in the boardroom have to realize that out there in our larger society, the concern about ESG is growing by leaps and bounds. And there's demonstrated proof of that. And so if you want people to want to be in your buildings, if they're going to see your brand as reputable and something that they can feel good about, if they want to benefit from the actual attributes of the building, be the on the E or the S side, well, you as a company better get going on this because it takes a while to embed it in the corporate culture so that you start to see results. That'd be what I talk about in the boardroom. Would you be buying? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. With follow-up questions, first and foremost, and I had to look it up because I never remember, but GRASB is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. That's right. Um, I mean, Catherine, do you have any comments about that? Well, yes. So the kinds of things that are really important in these new gen reporting formats for ESG is that they're focusing in on what's material. So in other words... You may have had corporate sustainability reports every year where you had pictures of people that were out at a Habitat for Humanity site for one day a year, you know, helping to build a building. But that isn't actually driving any results. So Grevsp says these are the things that matter to the performance of buildings. Energy, water, waste. We're going to measure it. And we're going to focus in on measuring it in a way that really matters. So one of the ways that is being widely adopted is measuring greenhouse gas emissions. So you as a GRES reporter, you are reporting on GHG at the asset level. And again, the impetus is that once you see how your GHG performance is, you're going to start putting on your thinking cap to improve it. And so GRES um, has been going for, a, well, I'd say, a decade in a material way. And for a long time in Europe, where it's highly adopted, the GHG emissions in buildings started falling really fast. Now, unfortunately, that's plateaued off because I think a lot of the low-hanging fruit in buildings has been done now. 
but it definitely has made a difference. You were uh, asking Aaron if he was buying what you're selling, and it's probably a valid question. He is in operations at First National, so that would be a pitch to put towards him. So if you were selling him and talking about return, it can be measured in two different ways. From my understanding with ESG, is one is there is a return on an investment that could be as simple as retrofit of a building to environmental standards that you can measure the energy savings, but also preservation of capital, which is a little harder to define. But when you're talking about the benefits of ESG, how much of it falls in the camp of capital preservation? How much of it falls in the camp of uh, return? Sure. Well, actually, you know what? Capital preservation is the yin and returns are the yang. The two are totally intertwined. As an investor, and I've done a lot of portfolio management, I can tell you the absolute number one way to outperform is don't lose money. And if you talk to MSCI, for instance, that puts out the Canadian MSCI RealPAC property index every year, they'll tell you that the outperforming managers in that index are the ones that don't lose money. So safe and steady wins the race in real estate. So having catastrophic loss from flooding in Calgary, for instance, where you have high deductibles, insufficient building interruption insurance, and you have severe damage to your parking garage, let's say, that was going to require extreme remediation before the building's even really open for normal business. Those kind of losses are very, very hard to overcome, and they show up in your returns. And they also show up to an extent in building valuations. So really, the first thing is don't lose money. But the second thing is, There's now more and more evidence coming forward that actually using ESG strategies very intelligently and very strategically drives positive return performance. And so that's the other part of it is you really want to be positioning yourself to take advantage of opportunities. So I would actually say that the best performing strategy is, first of all, you want to start off with a target because outperformance always has to be relative to something. Do you want to have a target? So let's say that target was lower vacancy than everybody else, than the market average. Then the next step is to make sure that you are avoiding risks or avoiding weaknesses. That's protecting on the downside. Then the next thing is to actually exploit weaknesses to develop an outperforming investment strategy for now. But then the next thing, and this is equally important because real estate is the long game, is you have to be looking around the corner to see what are the risks that will be material that haven't even shown up yet. And then the last thing is you have to be also seeing where there will be weaknesses that you can exploit now so that the people that you're trying to do better than that market average vacancy rate, for instance, is going to suffer and you're doing better by not suffering right along with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you said a number of interesting things where my brain went and maybe this is a good next because we're getting kind of, we started macro, we're getting kind of more micro and talking about sort of the actual specific implications on an asset-by-asset basis. 
as I listen to you talk, one of the challenges I would believe for real estate investors is to try to apply some sort of valuation enhancement to your assets based on this. If you adopt sort of a uh, all-encompassing ESG strategy, how does that show up in your value? And I think of one, that, and this came up in a real estate form a number of years ago where the flood risk, which you mentioned sort of the challenges in Calgary, if you've got one asset that's above the flood line and one asset below the flood line, but all everything else equal, I believe appraiser will say they're worth the same amount, even though really they shouldn't be. And so like, what kind of conversations are you having in the industry to try to adopt people's mind frames to, you know, ESG does have valuation implications. Right. Okay. Well, that's a pretty big question. So let me move into the stock market because I was kind of hoping that you guys would ask me, how did I even know that there was outperformance? And next question. That was the next question coming up. I promise. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, let me let me jump to that question and then circle back. So the stock market identified probably about 15 years ago what the ESG factors were. And several years ago, a very long study came out and showed that where ESG factors were treated as being material by a publicly traded company and where they took action on it, that that company actually outperformed the market average. So based on that, a professor at Harvard broke stocks into two groups, those with very high ESG scores on material factors, like factors that actually had some kind of a measurable benefit to the company, and firms that had low ESG scores. And he tracked it over 15 years, and he showed that there was a huge difference between these two portfolios. And so when investors started to read that, they started to get on the ESG train a couple of years ago. And all of a sudden, what you've started to see is that low ESG score companies, so oil companies would be a perfect example of a low ESG score company. All of a sudden, investors have started to actually devalue those companies. Some people have actually started to actually dump all their stocks that have oil and gas exposure. And so the valuation by the market has plummeted in those stocks. But at the same time, the valuation of high ESG companies has started to exceed market average valuations by quite a bit. And so in 2020, there was a big difference in the performance of stocks that were managed by a pro-ESG, like explicitly ESG investment strategy and the market average. And I think we all know that oil stocks really got decimated last year. So that valuation is starting to come up in the public markets where people voting with their dollars every single day value things. And so we can see that. Now, we know in real estate that until transactions occur, that valuations are appraisal-based. And so far, we have not seemed to convince appraisers that they should be starting to explicitly value factors. But the caveat is that there have been a couple of studies that are, I think, starting to cause investors to pay more attention. 
The first is there was a very important study done by Bentle Kennedy or on behalf of Bentle Kennedy a number of years ago by academics that showed that in their greenest buildings that they had better tenant retention, they had higher rents and longer leases. And so that stuff we know ultimately shows up in return performance. But then the second study was done by some people who used Gresbata three years ago. And they found out that if you took the top 10% of GRESB scores and compared them to the bottom 10% of GRESB scores, so in other words, you've got two groups to compare, high GRESB group, low GRESB group, that there actually was a 3% or 300 basis point return difference in the performance between those two groups. So what I think is going to happen is that this information is just starting to get out in the market and that perhaps not appraisers, perhaps investors will start to underwrite this stuff with a little finer pen. And once you start to see transactions occurring that you can point to as as watershed transactions in the market, I think that that gives appraisers more confidence to start to value factors that they think are somewhat intangible. So if there's value in some of these companies that have embraced it ahead of others, you mentioned the high performers and the low performers. How does that relate to real estate? Who's doing it well? Who's at the high end? And you can name names if you want. And if you really want to be (laughs) ugly about it, we can name names of who's at the bottom, but maybe we'll leave that one undisclosed. And then also as a follow-on, if you wanted to move up the ladder, what's the low-hanging fruit? So I'd love to hear your feedback on who's at the high end, low end, specifically in real estate, and how you can climb the ladder. Well, I probably isn't going to surprise you when I say that firms that are closely aligned with assets that are governed by very strong ESG policies, those managers are the ones that do the best. So for instance, BCIMC, where I used to work, where I cut my teeth in real estate transactions, they have been a big leader in ESG. And my earliest experiences to make me understand that ESG was important occurred there. So for years and years, they were very, you know, Bentall Kennedy was one of their major managers. And so the importance that BCI put on that in the real estate program fed through very quickly to the way that Bentall Kennedy ran their assets. So for years, they have been one of the top scoring squares managers in the world. Another group that I think people would say would have a very high value attached to ESG would be Cadillac Fairview. Ontario Teachers is a world leader in terms of ESG policies. And actually, when they did their climate report last year, they showcased Cadillac Fairview as the poster child of doing it right in terms of climate change investing that actually drives performance. And also, clearly protects the pension plan from the risks of climate change. So those would be a couple. There are some large U.S. investment managers that are closely aligned with European capital, and the Europeans are the furthest ahead geographically in this regard of real estate ESG. So those managers, they hear what their investors are saying. They've really stepped up and become high grub scores. I'm not going to talk about low growth scores, although what I can say is that it's very important to know that most firms join GRESP and start off with a very low score. 
And it's almost like they needed to be whipped with the wet noodle of actually getting measured and compared and ranked for them to pick up their socks and start to really walk and start to climb. The ascent on the growth scoring system that goes from one to five stars over time is like this. Because what gets measured gets managed. And that is just what is so critical about moving from some corporate sustainability report where you can say anything you want to about how many days you spend at Habitat Humanity sites and GRES that'll actually measure and give you a, a ranking from one to five stars based on your performance. Catherine, we'll save you having to say the names, but is it publicly available? I think those listening can just Google the GRESB, and I think you could probably find the list if you're so inclined. Just a reminder those that are participating as part of the Ref Club on the live webinar, get some questions in. We've only actually got a couple minutes left until we move to the Q&A session. So please, 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 in the chat, put in your questions. Catherine, with that, we've only got a couple minutes left. I guess I'll leave it to you because, I mean, again, this is a topic we can go for hours and hours. Do you want to maybe talk about your participation in Real Capital and maybe just a little bit about what what the discussion was like? Oh, thank you so much for asking that question because we taped our panel in advance and we had a fantastic panel. I really think that anybody that wants to really understand the benefits of ESG has to listen to this panel because you've heard me talking and of course I've got my perspective on the world, but we have four really excellent speakers that joined that panel And they talked about issues we haven't even started to talk about, but let's say green finance, critically important because of the fact that it's starting to be demonstrated that you can get better terms by having a green portfolio to take to market to get a green loan on or possibly launch a green bond on. So another part of outperformance, in addition to what you do with the equity, is always what goes on on your balance sheet. And if you can build that leverage part of your capital stack with favorable loans through the green finance mechanism, then you're pulling on all the levers. So there was big discussion about green finance, green loans and green bonds on that panel. And so that alone makes it well worthwhile because you're hearing from the experts. We also spoke about the real lived experience of investors with driving ESG into the portfolio, with the low-hanging fruit, with the more ambitious programs, and it all getting measured by GRESB. So, Adam, I'm just going to come back. You asked earlier, what is the low-hanging fruit? And I'd have to say the low-hanging fruit is not going to surprise you, and it's what everybody's already done, and that is things like lighting retrofits. Huge, quick payback, pencils out, great. Nobody's ever going to challenge you for making that capital decision on a building. That's done. What's left to be done now is the stuff that doesn't return in one to three years. That's got a longer payback, but truly adds to the value of the building, especially when you're looking at the long-term trends and you're trying to position your building to be competitive, to be lower than average vacancy over the long term. So that is a bit more challenging, and that is where the value of this green finance potentially having terms that are going to work better for borrowers can come in to finance these projects. 
You know, I was going to say that. Let me jump on the green finance because I we should we as two lenders we probably need to make some sort of comment. And I will tell you, our community is certainly well connected to this issue and have the same motivations. Whether you're a pension fund that's investing on the equity side or a life insurance company or pension fund investing on the debt side, you have the same motivations ultimately to your to your beneficiaries in some form or fashion. And so. There are a lot of discussions going on about that green finance, just figuring out how it ultimately works. And I will say from First National's perspective, being the largest CMHC lender, CMHC is is looking at this heavily about how they can bring in this green bond concept to their securitization model. On January 1st, they launched an affordability criteria to their Canada Housing Trust mortgage-backed security platform. And there's been lots of chatter about them bringing something forward about some environmental connection to their securitization models, which is really allows credit unions and lenders all of the like to access pretty inexpensive capital as long as it's CMC insured. So I, and to be fair, you know, we've heard lots of stories through interviews with Adam and I, the quadrio being one of them. I think it was, I can't remember the number now, $350 million green bond they issued right. just recently, right? So I think there's lots of opportunity in this marketplace. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, Catherine, you know, of course, better than we do, but Adam and I doing all these interviews across the spectrum, it's just starting to make its way to top of mind dialogue, right? It's starting to come up in regular basis where I think we probably started to hear it about a year or two ago, but it was lip service, I think, for the most part. It was like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I better create some sort of policy. And so I've got an ESG policy, but now it's starting to become, no, wait a minute, I need to have, not just have an ESG policy, but I need to have sort of an ESG committee, and I need to make sure this is embedded throughout my culture, and I actually benefit from it from a return perspective. That's right. Well, so i just going to say that Allied just did a green bond the other day. That's right. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And, How uh, big was it? Do you remember? I don't remember. I'm sorry. But, you know, the fact they did it means it had to be at least 150, I'd say, or up. Yeah. Yeah. On the real capital panel, you hear from the CFO of Real Can about her experience doing a real green bond issue. And really, I think you got to hear it from her. So I would encourage everybody to tune into our panel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and let, me go one, let me go one step further, Catherine. And if you want to follow up, I mean, reach out to Catherine, our four advisors. You can find all of her connection information because I think this is one of those things you're probably perfectly positioned, Catherine, is this thing that just takes off within our industry as our listeners and everybody else in the industry starts to understand a bit better that this is not just about satisfying requirements or whatever. It's actually about performance, really, right? You know what? I was ready to tell some war stories about how, as a young person and coming up through the ranks, I competed to outperform. And I'm all about outperformance. Everything I do in my consulting is all about that. And that's why, finally, when ESG got to the point where it was driving outperformance, well, that's when I moved my consulting model really fast. Thank you, Catherine. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're 50 minutes in. We've got to leave a little bit of time for the Q&A. I apologize for my children's noise in the background if anybody picked that up. This is COVID life, of course. Catherine, thanks so much. Real Estate Forums, thanks so much. For the Ref Club members, stick around. We're going to do some Q&A with Catherine. For the rest of you, thanks very much for listening. And we'll be back soon, of course. Thanks, Catherine. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. That's the end of our interview that we did with the Ref Club. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP 
Holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.